Foxes and Vowel is a movement committed to exploring and responding to the unexpected ways that God is moving and speaking in and around us. This podcast is part of that. We want to have conversations that matter with folks in all kinds of walks of life because we believe that the God of the Bible so often shows up in surprising and everyday kinds of ways. We want to pay attention and talk about that and just maybe be changed by it all. Thanks for joining the conversation. Hey, I'm Aaron, host of the Foxes and Vowel podcast. My guest today is Dr. Ainsley Carey, the Vice President of Student Affairs at the University of British Columbia. He's spent most of his professional life working for the well-being of students and seeking to help young people find and make meaning. As we often do on this podcast, we talk about vocation and about his own sense of calling, but we cover a lot of other stuff too. So stick around afterwards for some things that I'm taking away from this time. And in the meantime, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ainsley Carey. So Dr. Ainsley Carey, welcome to the Foxes and Fowl podcast. It's so, uh, it's so good to meet you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for your time. Aaron, it's a pleasure and thanks for the invitation. Yeah. Um, um, why don't we jump right yeah. into it? I, I wanted to... Uh, ask about your own kind of personal journey on this on this podcast we're especially interested in ideas of vocation or, or calling uh, kind of what we're supposed to do with ourselves and how we we figure that out and I, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are because I, I know you have a degree in, in counselor education and a PhD in education and I think uh, obviously I can see how that fits into what you're doing now but folks may uh, maybe incorrectly would assume that somebody with an education uh, a uh, PhD in education would be sort of on the teaching side of things, but you're in the administrative side of things. And, and that's where you have been for a while now. So I'm curious to know how you figured out that that was what you're cut out for and, uh, and maybe a little bit how you end up in, uh, in Vancouver at UBC. Great, thanks for that question. So I'll give a little background. My parents were immigrants to the US. They came from Trinidad. Um, they were very young when they came to the U.S., and um, I was born in New York. I'm number three out of four boys. When I was about 10 years old, my parents got a divorce and separated. So my mom moved to South Florida with my younger brother and I, and I grew up in South Florida, influenced by everything in South Florida, sports, great outdoors, all of the fun things about life as, as a young kid. Went to middle school, elementary school there, high school. And then I wanted to go to college and I wanted to play football. Let me put that, let me reverse that. I wanted to play football. So I knew I had to go to college, right? <laughs> so um, I went to the University of Florida and I'll say this directly to play football. Like that was my motivation. That was to me, what was gonna be my vocation. Hmm. And when I arrived at Florida, I was surrounded by these incredible athletes, bigger, stronger, faster, more, way more talented than me. And I think in my second year at the university, I remember coaches and teachers and high school and parents and people who cared about me saying, when I was a little kid, make sure you have a backup plan. Just don't go to play football. And suddenly that started ringing true. I thought, ooh, this, this is a good point. So my sophomore year in college, I got real serious about academics. What I did was I translated everything I was learning on the field, you know, how we study plays, how we react, the fact that I was a 
physical learner. Like I had to move and think and I could do hand signals to remember how to study and remember long lists of things. And I started applying that into the classroom and I became a totally different student in my third, fourth and, um, and going into graduation. So I graduated from the University of Florida with a love for learning. I had this realization that I could take any class, study and work hard enough and achieve good grades in it if I worked hard enough and did the same things that I did on the field. So I fell in love with learning, graduated from Florida with a bachelor's, worked for a year at Walmart in retail, realized this isn't what God designed me to do. It just wasn't fulfilling. It wasn't something I look forward to. So I went back to the University of Florida graduate school and um, I sat down with a counselor and they asked me, what graduate program are you interested in? I said, I don't know a name of a program, but here's what I enjoy doing. I enjoy helping young people make meaning out of life. And they said, oh, mm -hmm. sounds like you'd be interested in counselor education with a higher education emphasis. Okay, whatever that is, <laughs> sign me up. So it sounded good. I signed up in it. And Aaron, it was one of those experiences where, you know, you do the thing that you love doing and you'll never have to work another day in your life, right? Because I feel like I got into a graduate program in counselor education and it, it, I never felt like I was studying. I always felt like I was learning, like I was exploring, like I was engaging. And so I earned my master's in counseling and then my doctorate in college administration. And since then have worked around the country at a number of universities in the US in higher education administration. Um, I worked at University of Arkansas, Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Temple University of Philadelphia, Auburn University in Alabama, University of Southern California, and now University of British Columbia. And again, I always feel like this is what God designed me to do because it never feels like work. It always feels like I'm just hanging out, talking to people. Um, and I, that's the best thing to get paid for, the thing that's that amazing. feels natural. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's awesome. I'm glad for that. And that that's sort of uh, a good way to lead into my next question because you know so much of education is social. <laughs> so much of a student's uh, experience in particular of university is, is social. Um, and, and I'm wondering, you know, this has been a weird year for everybody. I think it's been especially weird for those people in, in education at any level. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my, my mom teaches primary students and, uh, you know, good luck. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and I know that the social aspect, uh, just from reading other interviews with you, uh, that the social aspect of university is something that matters to you. Uh, the social aspect of education is something that matters to you. And I, I feel like UBC's done a, a pretty good job of, of facing these challenges, especially for a big organization. I'm watching kind of peripherally, but I wonder how this season has been just for you, uh, what it's been like to kind of lead through this time and, and maybe what you're experiencing from students. Yeah, that's another good question, Aaron. So you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, higher education is really about us. It's the great social experiment, the great social experience. So education has existed in the US since kind of the Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Brown, you know, more than 400 years ago, uh, universities started launching in, in North America. Other parts of the world had been doing it a couple hundred years before that. But um, we've been doing this for 400 some odd years and it's all been about social interaction. 
a teacher or a professor with students in a class talking, engaging, debating. Um, and then universities evolved where students lived on campus, living in the residence halls, eating, dining, socializing, joining Greek letter organizations, being a part of the faith community of a university. Then universities continue to grow to small college towns where sports come involved, football, basketball, Olympic sports, big games, again, all about people gathering, the development of community. Some students choose their university because of the community, right? So they might say, hey, UBC has the best business or engineering school. I want to go there for the academics, but I'm also choosing UBC because it's a great place to live and eat and hang out and the music and the culture, all of that is about being social. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, the most um, diabolical virus you could imagine comes along and says, we're gonna remove everything that you were built on. The notion that people can hang out, I'm gonna take that away. People can eat together, we're gonna take that away. People can go to sporting events together, we're gonna take that away. We can sit in small classrooms and debate philosophy and topics. We're going to take that away. You can go to church and gather in a congregation with people. We're going to take that away. Everything our foundation was built on, social interaction, social engagement, learning with peers and community, suddenly the most diabolical virus comes along and says, we're going to take all of that away. So you talk about the most massive disruptive force I'm sure in, in, in my lifetime, but in many lifetime, everyone who we've designed universities for people to gather. We have 12,000 beds on campus for students to live on campus. We have 27 dining facilities for students to eat on campus. And suddenly all of that is gone. Like we can't do that right now. We know, well, I believe there's a future where we will be back. Right. Yeah. We've had a pandemic 100 years ago before the world has seen this. And guess what? We had this 100 years of somewhat normalcy. So we'll be back. Right. The, mm -hmm. This isn't the end. But everything about the university experience is completely different to the class of you know, 2020, 2021. Those students who got admitted to the university and suddenly they can't do all the things that they imagined about coming to university. So it has been the most disruptive um, experience that anyone in higher education could imagine. We've planned scenarios like fires and floods and weather disasters, but no one has planned the scenario of global pandemic, right? <laughs> so it is not something that we sat down and thought through. So yeah, we have students who are studying at UBC sitting in Toronto right now, sitting in India, sitting in Mumbai, sitting in Miami, Florida, who are first years at UBC and they're trying to have a college experience and they're doing it from the basement of their home or in a bedroom they share with a sibling. And it's just not the university experience they expected. We do have some grace right now because students are saying, look, we get it. This thing is serious. And it, it took us a while to get here because for a while people were saying, no, let's get back to business. Bring everybody back to campus. Don't take away this first year experience. Every, let's go to football games. Let's go to athletic events. 
And then we just watch as, in, at least in the US, more than 300,000, almost 400,000 people have lost their lives. And here in Canada, slightly over 15,000. And I think people woke up and said, well, this is a little bit more serious than me having a great freshman year. So we are aware that um, it is painful right now for so many students to stay at home and try to do this experience at home when it wasn't designed for them to do it from home. We're well aware that the mental health challenges still exist and some of them have gotten exacerbated by the current circumstances, right? Um, people can't go outside and walk, go to a restaurant, go to a movie, go to the gym, go do your, all the stress relievers of life are limited. Um, so all of those things are needed for you to study. Um, going to church, you can't do it in some places. Visiting grandma, can't do it. All the things that used to refuel us, um, we're limited by, um, especially the extroverts, right? So I, I do want to acknowledge that there are some people who are living their best life right now, who are introverts and love being at home and my they can take classes. Been, my wife said this is what she's been training for all her life. <laughs> <laughs> so this is... You know, we, we understand that there are two sides of this coin, but I will say it has disrupted everything that my life has been made of in, in higher education, that is, that we design experiences for students. So we constantly think about their engagement, where they eat, student organizations, athletic participation. We're always thinking about how to get students engaged, and now we're thinking just the opposite. How do we keep students apart until it's safe for everyone to return? And when we return, how do we make sure we keep students safe? So if anyone is infected, we can get them the help they need and then stay in touch with their contacts to make sure no one else is infected. So it is um, a very difficult situation for us to think through right now. We're, we're praying for a better day, which we know will come someday. Um, but we know that the trickle down effect of the separation that we've been going through has been massive for, for how we design the university and what we've learned students needs, students and humans. We needed social, we need social interaction. But what, what I am excited about, Aaron, is this has forced us to rethink higher education, right? So mm -hmm. suddenly um, there are a bunch of students who now have access who didn't have access before because they could learn like this in a virtual yeah. setting, right? Like we weren't playing that out before. There are a bunch of students who want to see a mental health counselor and we they weren't ready to do it online, but now they're forced to do it online. So they're suddenly realizing, wait a minute, this still works. There are a lot of students that um, we serve in Vancouver and Kelowna because we have a campus in Kelowna and they didn't have access to certain things, but now they do. So I am hopeful that we retain the innovations we've learned and continue to pull those things forward into the next century. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, I think it's been uh, a really challenging season, but it's not been without its uh, silver linings may not be the right <laughs> thing. But, you know, I, I think the, this major disruption forces us to rethink what we're about, what we're doing, why we're doing it. Uh, you know, uh, we, uh, we've taken for granted that we could be together, that we could do yeah. it the way that we've always done it. Uh, but I, so it'll be interesting to see what, uh, what comes afterwards. What, what, what is 
what has changed forever? Do you, have a, do you have a sense about that? Yeah. One of the things that I often think and say is if we return back to normal, we would have wasted this learning opportunity. We should continue to offer some segment of our educational experience virtually mm -hmm. to the student who wants to stay in Toronto and be enrolled at UBC. We should do that. For the student who wants to live in Dallas, Texas and be a UBC student, we should continue to do something of mm -hmm. that nature. Um, it would be a waste to put so many uh, academic experience online and then um, scrap it in 2022 when everything is back to normal, right? So I, I think some part of the educational experience, I hope we would maintain virtually. I also would like to maintain a part of the student services experience. So as you know, my work as vice president for student affairs, it's all about what happens outside the classroom for me, how we support students, how housing, dining, um, mental health services, clinical services, um, student activities and student involvement, all of that is what's happening outside the classroom. The domain of the classroom is left to the faculty and the provost, but outside the classroom is where students spend the other 170 hours of their week yeah. with us. They live with us, they eat with us, they dine with us, they do recreation. There are some things that we were forced to convert to online options which suddenly um, students of different faiths, students of different gender, um, students, introverted and extroverted students now said, wow, I get a chance to participate. Mm -hmm. I would hope that we would um, keep the, some of those things alive, keep a version of it alive, that students could continue to be part of this community in virtual ways. Like we now have um, telecounseling where students can participate in counseling sessions, just like you and I are now in kind of in virtual formats. I hope that we continue to do that because it, it lifts the limitations on physical settings where a student had to show up to a counselor's office at a specific time in a specific place and the times of operation. Now students can access counseling 24 hours a day, seven days a week, mm -hmm. because um, some, of the, some challenges don't happen from nine to five. Um, now we could be much more responsive to, to broader needs and issues. So I would hope that we would keep in mind those things that we were forced to develop and that we continue to do it. On the staff side, um, we have 90 plus percent of our staff sitting at home, still running the university, still mm -hmm. finding a way to make things happen and being productive and taking care of their family, taking care of their kids, homeschooling and um, so now our kids see a whole lot more of us, uh, at least in, in my case. I used to be, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, on, on campus until 7, 8 p.m. every day, except, um, you know, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um, and sometimes I did have a Saturday event. But now, as soon as I press, you know, leave Zoom meeting at 5 <laughs> o'clock, I'm in my living room. Yeah. And there's no commute time and there's no late night event. And I'm having dinner with my family at six o'clock and we're watching a movie. Yeah. So it's a whole different world. And I'm hoping that um, part of this quality of life that we've discovered 
we maintain some of it, right? To just take everybody back into the office 100%, I think would be a loss of what we just found. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that some people can find peace and I'll just make it up, you know, working from home three days a week, two days a week, or a half day every week, or is something that allows people to, you know, double down on what's important, the family. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. And uh, I think that the thing I've experienced really is, is kind of spaciousness uh, yeah. from this time, you know, and I admit that my, my position and my life is fairly charmed. I, you know, like <laughs> we haven't suffered massive losses uh, or right. either, you know, personal or, or even communal. Um, but even so, I still think, you know, just not the half hour getting to a place <laughs> right. yeah. uh, means you got an extra half hour to do something else. So yeah, I, I think there are gifts and I hope, like you said, I, I think, uh, forget who said, it, you know, it's a shame to waste a perfectly good uh, tragedy or whatever, <laughs> perfectly yep. good. Um, so I hope, I hope that yeah. we, tragedy is not the right word. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, um, crisis. Um, Rahm Emanuel, the, um, the President Obama's chief of staff, when he first took over in the White House, he's currently, I believe, the mayor, of, used to be the mayor of Chicago. One of his, you know, quotes, I'm sure he wasn't the originator of it, but he used to say to Obama, you know, let's not waste this crisis. Yeah. So they would use a crisis to think about a political agenda they were trying to advance. Um, I do think this is a, a moment of crisis for us to think about um, things that we need to advance, especially social services, mm-hmm. thinking about food insecurity, housing insecurity, um, child care challenges. Um, suddenly, it, these things, it, you know, I often oh, get a little rattled by when people say, oh, as a result of COVID, we realized racism exists. We just realized that food insecurity exists. Oh my God, we just realized that some people don't have homes and they can't pay their rent. These are not discoveries. These are things that have existed for a long time um, that now we're being forced to pay attention to because it's so acute. Um, I hope we don't lose that memory of how painful these things are and we continue to come up with solutions for them. Yeah. Yeah, a wistfulness for what was normal 10 months ago yeah. may not be the healthiest thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do want to get together with my friends again, but uh, yes. there are yeah. some things we could change. That's mm-hmm. great. You've already kind of touched on it a, a little bit, but I, you know, I had a conversation a couple of interviews ago with a, my, my friend Michael Griffin, who teaches philosophy and classics at uh, UBC, uh, about what universities are for. You know, I, I'm in the sort of a generation and a half or so for that discovered that a university degree was not going to be a guarantee of a job. We were kind of told that if we didn't go to a university, it wouldn't amount to anything. But if, uh, you know, lots of us graduated university, I feel pretty lucky that I, you know, I actively use my English degree, which I think is (laughs) sort of unusual, you know, and and university is expensive and it's challenging. And yet I think you and I would both agree that it's, it matters, that it's, uh, it's valuable for those who pursue it. Uh, And I I think we should be really glad that there, this situation may increase its accessibility. Uh, Just not having to live in Vancouver is kind of a big deal. Yeah. 
but I think it begs the question, and you know, I'm asking this about the church, uh, but what 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 do you think universities are for? Like, what are they going to be for going forward? I mean, I yeah, think it's I, about getting a, like the next step, but if that's not kind of a guarantee, and I don't want to, you know, I'm sure lots of UBC students are employed. <laughs> after that, but, you know, it's just not a guarantee, like it used correct. to. Yeah, I would agree with that. And if, if we think back to the evolution of when universities started and why they were started, um, universities originally were intended, at least here in North America, for the development of the clergy, the politicians, lawyers, doctors, um, the professions that were needed to advance human life. Um, so that's who went to school, those who were privileged, who had access, because most of the general population was able to run and manage an agrarian economy without earning a master's degree to do it, right? We had farmers and laborers and people built homes and all of those things um, at one point didn't require us to go to college. And as the industrial revolution came along and we started building factories and plants and cars and skyscrapers, then we needed people to be able to do those things, people to study engineering and people to study urban environments and study agriculture to make it more productive. So universities then said, oh, well, we can't just educate the privileged. We now need to educate the farmer's son so he could return and make his farm more profitable. So it was um, universities always kind of had this purpose, this we want to educate a group of people to be doctors, lawyers, um, clergy. Oops, we need people now to be farmers and engineers. Oops, we need people now to be rocket scientists because now we want to go to the moon. So we need to educate the next generation of scientists. So we continue to evolve as, as the, the public had a good that needed to be accomplished. So universities became flooded with those. So it was a public service at one point. And then as the public became saturated with educated people, suddenly universities became a private good. I sent my kid to a university because I need her to grow up. I need her to mature. I need him or her to be you know, a better person than they are. So it became this place where students were being self-adulting, right? Like, my son is not ready to go work for IBM. I need him to spend four years somewhere so he can grow up a little bit and get this, you know, just brain development. So I think there was this phase where it was kind of a holding place for adulting. Um, but that's not how it's been marketed. It's always been marketed as, you know, you have to have a, a college degree now in order to be successful. That wasn't always the case. So um, we, we start to promote statistics about the earning power of the high school diploma versus the college degree and so on. So it may have been marketed as a um, required or, or you will be guaranteed employment afterwards, but that's not factual. There are some individuals that choose to do different things. There are some um, professions that don't require a college degree. There are some degree programs that don't prepare you for that profession anymore because the profession has changed so much. Whatever the work was, 
students graduate and then still need a graduate degree to do that work now or still need an internship to do that work now. So the direct connection between earned degree, land employment has been um, kind of withering away over the decades because employment changes so much. Universities don't, right? Universities, what we teach is relatively static until some revolution comes into the field, it's introduced into the classroom. And then those connections between employment and, um, and what you earn your degree in start to work. But in between, we have a human choice. Right? Some people will earn a PhD in a discipline and suddenly realize, I don't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> I want to run a social service organization. I want to help people. I want to start a tech company, right? So the connection between um, what I studied and what I end up being employed in has so many things in between it. Changing industry, changing personal interests, um, changing geography. Think about the career, the employment opportunities that COVID just disrupted. Like all the students who are getting ready to graduate now looking to walk into Fortune 500 companies, suddenly you're not doing that anymore. People whose work was all about the cruise industry or the airline industry, you know, those would be disrupted for a little a little while until we figure out what what to do and how to do it. So I think the, personally, I think universities now are really about um, helping people find purpose, um, helping people adult, you know, be away from home, be away from parents, go through some struggles, think about life, um, dive deep into an academic discipline, um, and the bachelor's degree, essentially you can earn a bachelor's degree in so many things and then go off and do whatever you want to do. Um, and then when you come back for graduate school, that's when you may specialize in something. But I think it's about ad adulting. It's about personal development. It's about personal choice. It's about growing up. It's about all of the challenges that young adults face in the 18 to 24, 25 range. But I don't know if the university is, should essentially be sold as you study art history you will be an art historian. The line is not as direct as that um, because in between that, there's so many options. There's so many choices. Parents get ill, parents get divorced, parents get married, sibling wants to go to school. You wanna start a new bit. There's so many things that happen in between my art history degree and my art history job. Um, I, so many people that work at the university didn't start off studying higher education administration. I work with thousands of people who, this is not their degree. This mm -hmm. is not what they studied. They studied English, they studied engineering, they studied music, and now they are the associate dean for technology, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's, such a, it's such a world of personal choice. So um, for, for me, I, I was fortunate enough, my, my first degree was in business and I worked, went and worked in Walmart and I hated it. I realized this isn't what I want to do. Went back and studied education. Now this is what I'm doing. So I was fortunate that there were some direct paths, but I don't think it's, it's the same story for everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's becoming really clear in the conversations I'm having with people is <laughs> most paths aren't very direct. Uh, right. there's, there's a lot of stuff that changes in between. And I think, uh, you know, 
I, I, I'm generally inclined to say that education is its own reward. Uh, yeah. It doesn't exactly pay down the student debt, but it is a consolation. <laughs> you know, and one of the things I think about a lot, so that, this is um, part of my personal philosophy, and I think everyone has a personal philosophy that, that guides what they believe in. Um, I, I feel like the university is what you make it. So if a student comes here skeptical, you know, not enthusiastic about what's going on, feeling like the university owes me um, a job, they owe me housing, they owe me the food, the university owes these things. Um, I came from an immigrant background where my personal philosophy and my personal observation throughout my entire life was you got to work for it. No one is going to give it to you. Mm -hmm. So some people may have that as an option where people give them things. I always had this belief that my faith had to be strong. I had to work for it. Sometimes I would get a break from a person who came forward and said, Ainsley, I'm going to give you a chance. But I didn't, I didn't count on that. I didn't live with hoping that that break came. I live with, I want to make when that break happens, I want to be ready. I want to be prepared. So I came to university not expecting anything other than I have to put in the hard work and I'm going to create my future. Or spiritually, um, through, through my faith and my hard work, the deep, my deeds would produce the outcomes that I would hope for and want in life. So I never operated from this place where the university failed me because I didn't land at the Fortune 500 company I wanted and I'm not making the salary I want. The university failed me. I never came from this place that they owed me anything. Um, I came from the place that I want to learn something here. This is an opportunity for me and I'm going to, I'm going to chart, I'm the master of my own destiny in, in, in this context. But I understand that's, that's not the philosophy for everyone. So I'm not suggesting it is but it's what kept me alive. It's what kept me um, uh, striving forward, um, taking opportunities, taking risk. I, I do say that from a place of privilege as a man as well. I understand that the, that the world is, is different based on gender and sexual orientation. Uh, I say this as, as an immigrant. I say this as an American, right? It, it, it's not true for everyone. So. I want to leave room for all of the different opinions on this, but I, I do claim the space to say I entered the university without the expectation that it owed me anything. In mm -hmm. fact, I had to take in order to move forward, not take from, but take the things I was going to learn and then apply them. That's good. Thanks for that. I, I want to I want to finish with this uh, question. I, I'm I'm curious. And, and specifically because you interact with students in the way that you do, how, how can external organizations, and, and, and you know, in my case, I'm thinking of the church, but uh, anybody who might happen to listen to this podcast, how can we support students? What, what do students need these days? And how can, how can we support you in your work? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, we are in this place as a university um, where we're trying to create opportunities for students in hopes that they would come participate. We can't require them, we can't force them, 
but we want to create spaces, um, um, opportunities, events, cultural, social events where they feel engaged. Mm -hmm. We know within in a normal year when students land on campus, we know within the first six to eight weeks, students will decide in their mind if they have made the right choice. Did I come to the right school? Um, is this the right degree program? Do I want to stay in Vancouver or go back to Toronto? We know that that calculation is going on uh, consistently. And they need a Velcro moment. They need to find a club, find an organization, join a team that lets them know I'm in the right place. I'm glad I came here. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, it, those first eight weeks, if it doesn't happen there, we stand a stronger and stronger chance of losing that student within that first year if they don't have this, some interaction, some engagement. And it's not about their academic ability because they are, because we admitted them, they are competent and they can handle the classwork. The, the challenge is their social engagement, the social interaction, um, the social connection. And that's where we would like to have those first six to eight weeks to be a showcase of the opportunities at UBC and in Vancouver. Um, it's a beautiful city, lots of cool things to do, but it's very easy to come to Canada or Vancouver from Mumbai, Auburn, Alabama, Los Angeles, Seattle, Toronto, and be lonely for a year. Mm -hmm. And suddenly say, I've had trouble making friends. I haven't left my residence hall room. Um, I'm going back home, right? Um, we want to create opportunities for domestic and international students to get connected, have that Velcro experience where they, where they find the thing that helps them stick. They find a community. And we're a university of 50,000 students in Vancouver, another 15,000 in the Okanagan. So about 65,000 students that sometimes feel alone. How do we work with organizations on campus and off campus so students have a menu of opportunities that they get to choose, that they get to pick from, um, both for the introverts and the extroverts. Um, but I think it's supremely important that we find ways to work with our surrounding community to help students explore and learn what's available here. And that usually happens in a normal year within the first two months. And in September, we expect to have, you know, our regular first year class, a second year class of students that didn't have a first year experience. And they're gonna say, what's here? What mm -hmm. can I join? Who could I be with? Who could I engage? And um, I would hope that we would have those things available for them. Great, well, thank you for that. And I wanna, I wanna thank you for your time. I know you're, I'm sure you're a busy guy. I'm sure this is a semester starts now and, uh, Things are ramping up, so you've been really generous with your time and grateful for it. It's uh, lovely to meet you, uh, even virtually, and blessings on your work. Thanks for all that you do on behalf of UBC students, and I hope we'll get to talk again soon. Aaron, thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed the conversation. All right, take care. Take care. Thanks for spending some time with us today. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ainsley Carey as much as I did. Here's some things I'm thinking about from our time. It's not a bad idea to have a backup plan, even if it's just to learn as much as we can, whatever the situation. Sometimes the things we 
want to do are not actually the things we're called and made to do. Second, I was struck that Ainsley called the COVID-19 virus diabolical. We don't have time right now to dive into whether there's a demonic power behind things like COVID, but to call this situation diabolical reminds us that the separation that we're experiencing is contrary to how we're created. When Christians talk about sin, we talk about the things that separate and divide us from God, from our true selves, from each other, and from the rest of creation. Our lives are not made for separation, but for community. In the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 18, God makes it clear that it's not good for a person to be alone. Let's make sure we're reaching out to one another. Third thing, disruption is not invariably bad even bad disruptions. We, we shouldn't be too wistful for what was, but we should pay attention to what's being laid bare, the good and the bad, and let that shape our futures. And fourth, as we so often hear, sometimes the path to where you're, we're meant to be is direct, and sometimes, maybe a lot of times, it's not. It's good to be reminded that we might just be on the way to what's in store. Thanks again for listening. Thanks to the Foxes and Fowl team, the University Hill Congregation, and the Pacific Mountain Region of the United Church of Canada. Thanks to Davis Miller for the tunes. Check them out wherever you get your music. And if you want to find out more about Foxes and Fowl, you can find us online and on Instagram and Facebook at foxesandfowl.ca. Until next time, grace and peace.